Acts chapter 5, verses 40 through 42. It reads, And they agreed with him, and when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and let them go. So they departed from his presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Thank you, Kirk, for reading our scripture tonight. We appreciate your presence. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 5 in just a moment or two. Before we begin, I do want to express appreciation for your presence tonight. We're always glad to see those of you who are present. We're glad for the opportunity to come together to worship God in spirit and in truth. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 5, beginning down in verse 12 through the end of the chapter. As we think about the theme together, the saints who wouldn't back down. Many of us admire people of great courage. And when I look at the apostles and many of the saints in the first century, I see a lot of men and women who were very courageous and demonstrated tremendous conviction in the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 5, we have an account of Ananias and Sapphira being indicted and punished for lying to God. In verse 12, Luke tells us, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. And believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. So that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches. That at least the shadow of Peter's passing by might fall on some of them. Also a great multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. It's in this context that we have an account of the apostles, the saints, who wouldn't back down. We think about what it means to be a Christian. Just a moment ago we sang about standing up for Jesus. And we think about the world in which we live, America, and how the country that we love and appreciate, some of the traits that once made this country great in many, many respects, those traits and characteristics have diminished. There has been an erosion in our nation, a nation that once prided itself in her belief in God and His Word. And yet today, those who belong to the Christian faith, those of us who belong to the body of Christ and who believe in the God of the Bible and the Scriptures, we have in many respects come under attack. And so, it's in light of that that we need to think about arming ourselves with courage and conviction. And we, like 
our predecessors of old, should not ever back down for what we believe. Peter would say, sanctify the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give an answer to every man that asks you of the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we ought to be people who know who we are and whose we are. We ought to be people that know what we believe and why we believe it, and thus stand fast. When you look at the saints of old, the apostles of old, you see that even in the face of persecution, they wouldn't back down. I'm in no way saying that we ought to be ugly or caustic or arrogant, but nonetheless, we ought to be people who believe in God to the extent that if the need arises, we would willingly lay down our lives for his cause. And the reason is because Jesus said, be faithful unto death. That is, in the face of death, we're to be faithful. The promise being the crown of life, Revelation chapter 2 at verse 10. I want to begin tonight by first of all talking about the saints who suffered for the word. In verses, really picking up in verse 17, we have an account of the saints' imprisonment. The text tells us, in light of the preceding events that have just transpired, the high priest rose up, and all those who were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees, by and large, they were the majority in the Sanhedrin Council. The Pharisees would have been in the minority. In the day of Christ, there were about 6,000 Pharisees. And so it was a rather large sect of people. But nonetheless, the high priest rose up, and those with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and the text tells us they were filled with indignation and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. So they're imprisoned. And then note, if you would, the divine intervention. Verse 19 tells us, But at night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. And then note, if you would, the divine instructions. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. The high priest and those with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. When the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. And when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. Then one came and told them, saying, Look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Now note, if you would, what is said in verse 26. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. Now the interrogation. 
And when they brought them, they set them before the council, that is, the Sanhedrin council. And the high priest asked them, Note, if you would, the reminder. Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name, that is, in the name of Christ? You recall Peter and John had been commanded not to teach or preach in the name of Christ? So the question is asked, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. Historians state that there were about 55,000 residents living in the city of Jerusalem. And about half of that city, some 20,000 or so, were said to have been New Testament Christians. So you think about the impact of the gospel in the first century. The church, now in her infancy. Jesus has purchased the church with his blood. The church is growing and growing by leaps and bounds. As a matter of fact, back in verse 14, passage we read a moment ago, believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So many people were obeying the gospel. And so you have at least approximately half of the city comprised of New Testament Christians. Now note, if you would, the reply. Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Now think about that for a minute. They have been instructed, do not preach, do not teach in the name of Jesus. But they answered to a higher power, didn't they? Their allegiance was to God. Did they respect government authorities? Yes, they did. But when it came to their service to God, God's laws trump man's laws. And so Peter said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. As a matter of fact, back in Acts chapter 3, we have Peter's second, second gospel sermon recorded by Luke. And Peter assures those people that they were witnesses to the resurrected Christ. And so because of their because of the fact that they were witnesses to the resurrected Christ, they would say, look, we can't but speak the things we've seen and heard. Men of great conviction and courage. Verse 31, Him God has exalted to His right hand to be Prince and Savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are His witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. In verse 33, we have the rage. The Bible says, when they heard this, they were furious and took counsel to kill them. It's here that we have another intervention. We have a man by the name of Gamaliel and Many of us are familiar with Gamaliel. He was an esteemed and highly respected teacher among the Jewish people. As a matter of fact, Saul of Tarsus, you recall, sat at his feet. And many would say that Saul of Tarsus would have had what would equate today to a Ph.D. So a very knowledgeable man in Judaism. And the Bible says that 
one of the council members, that is Gamaliel, and he was a Pharisee, he would have been outnumbered among the Sanhedrin council. The Bible says he was a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while so they could confer. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census, drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, listen to what he says. Sage advice. Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But now note verse 39. But, he said, if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you be found to fight against God. So we think about the saints who suffered for the word. It's in light of that that I want to talk for just a moment or two about the saints who shared the word. Because really everything that has been written thus far is extremely important in light of the context. Because in verses 40 through 42, we're going to note the reaction of the apostles to the Sanhedrin council, to the religious leaders, the Jewish leaders of that day. I want you to know what is said. In verse, well, in verse 40, Luke said, And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them. I want you to think for just a moment about this. They have been reprimanded, commanded not to teach nor preach in the name of Jesus. And now they're being beaten. Some would say that possibly 39 stripes were laid upon their backs. These men would have been stripped to their waist and they would have been beaten unmercifully. We talk about the scourge. The fact that Jesus was scourged. Paul talks about how 195 stripes had been laid upon his back in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. These men possibly had 39 stripes laid upon their backs. And then they were commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. But look at verse 41. In verse 41, their reaction is not typical. In other words, it's not what you would expect. The Bible says they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Imagine that. These guys have been beaten. Those who have interrogated them have sought to muzzle them from teaching and preaching the good news of the gospel. And their reaction, at least from my vantage point, is amazing. 
Go back with me, if you would, for just a minute and look at Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 5, we have what is typically referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus begins laying some foundational truths upon which those who would be disciples of His would need to internalize and demonstrate in their lives. In Matthew chapter 5, at verse 10, listen to what Jesus says. And we talk about the transparency of the teaching of Jesus. Jesus would say later in His ministry, He said, look, if they hated me, they'll hate you. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you, in John 15. So in Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The apostles were being persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for right doing, for upholding the will of God. Now look at verse 11. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely. Listen to what he says. For my sake. For my sake. Jesus is saying here, look, you want to be my disciple. You want to follow me. You need to understand. You better come equipped with courage and conviction because you're not going to be able to stand and be faithful without it. Look at verse 12. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Why in the world would you say to those who are following you to rejoice and be exceedingly glad in spite of being persecuted for the sake of righteousness, in spite of being spoken of in an evil way for His name's sake? Because Great is your reward in heaven. You think the apostles believed in heaven? Do you think they believed that there was something better beyond this veil of tears? Do you remember before Jesus was ultimately betrayed by Judas Iscariot, suffered, bled, and died on the cross? He said to the apostles, in John chapter 14, let not your heart be troubled. He said, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And he said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. Did they believe in heaven? Yes, they did. Did they believe that the very Lord that had ascended to heaven would one day descend from heaven and take them home? Absolutely. Peter would later write about the blessings of heaven. He said that we have an inheritance undefiled. He said it fades not away and it's reserved. Where? In heaven. For whom? For you. So, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted the prophet, rather so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You can go back to the Old Testament and you can read about prophet after prophet after prophet who suffered for the name of Almighty God. Think, for example, about Daniel. Daniel was cast into a den of lions, wasn't he? Why? Because of his faith in God. His unwillingness to recant 
but rather he was willing to pray in the face of a law that was unalterable in that day and time during the reign of the Medes and the Persians. And so he kneeled and prayed to God three times as he had always done in the past. I think about men like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who in the face of imminent danger and death, Nebuchadnezzar was on the throne, the ruler of Babylon. He had erected a golden image, 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. Instructions that were given, you need to bow to this golden image, the sound of certain musical instruments. They wouldn't bow, and ultimately they were thrust into that fiery burning furnace, but God saved them, didn't he? So you can go back and you can read about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, men who were companions of Daniel, the great prophet of God. You can read about Jeremiah the prophet, who was imprisoned, who faced any number of difficulties. Amos the prophet tried to run him out of town. Many, many of the prophets of God suffered. And what Jesus is saying is, let me tell you what, you're in good company. Over in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus gave the limited commission, in verse 22, he said, You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Think about that. The apostles were forewarned, but they were also forearmed. And so they praised God that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Would you react that way? If someone were to verbally taunt you for your faith in God, if someone were to mistreat you verbally because of your stand for Christ, would you thank God for it? Would you praise Him for it? If, perchance, physical persecution were to come to you, would you praise God? for the honor bestowed on you to suffer for the cause. These guys were grateful that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Peter said, if any man suffer, let him not be ashamed, but glorify God. If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but glorify God in this matter. Now note, if you would, their preaching. They've already been commanded not to preach nor teach in the name of Christ. As a matter of fact, back in chapter 4, Peter and John had been commanded not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus, verse 18. In verse 28 of chapter 5, the command, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? What was their response? Well, they had filled Jerusalem with this doctrine. Verse 40, Again, commanded not to speak in the name of Jesus. Look at verse 42. The Bible says, And daily in the temple, that's publicly, and in every house, that's privately, they did not cease preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ. Why would they do that? Why would they willingly subjugate themselves to more persecution, to more heartache, to more suffering. Why would they do that? 
Why would they subject themselves to more heartache? I think, number one, because they understood the urgency of the message. Do we understand how urgent it is for people to hear the gospel of Christ? I made a notation this afternoon. Did you know that there are 250 births that take place every minute? The flip side of that is there are 105 people dying every minute. That's almost two people per second stepping out into eternity. Just think about that. A hundred and five people every single minute crossing over into the Hadean realm, many of whom have never heard the gospel, many of whom are not ready to stand face to face with God in the judgment. They understood the urgency of the gospel message. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Mark 16, 15. In Matthew's account, he said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul said, we must all be made manifest before the judgment seat of Christ. It's a fact. Paul knew that the judgment loomed over the human family. And so in light of that, in verse 11, he said, therefore, we persuade men. Let me tell you what. The Hebrew writer said, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10, 31. What the writer was saying is simply this. It is a thing fearful beyond belief to die unprepared to meet God. And so in light of that, what were the apostles doing? What they were instructed to do? Well, what was that? Preach the gospel? Teach the gospel? Where were they doing that? Publicly and privately? Listen again. And daily. Not weekly. Not monthly, not semi-annually or annually, but daily. In the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. I wonder why that was the case. Go back with me for just a moment. Look at Acts chapter 4 again. Peter and John had healed a lame man at the gate of the temple, had created a furor among the people. The religious leaders. They were literally called on the carpet of the Sanhedrin council. In verse 18, they were commanded not to speak nor teach in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John said, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, he said, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Do you have that kind of conviction? Do you have that deep-seated conviction 
that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and He is the Savior of the world. And that without Him, men and women are lost and dying in sin. Do we really understand that the wages of sin is death? Romans 6.23 Do we understand, as Ezekiel said many, many years ago, the soul that sins, it shall surely die. They understood they had the answer. They had the solution to the sin problem. The answer was Christ. And they were so convicted that they wanted to share that message. Day in and day out. I can tell you why the church is not growing like it ought to grow. The church isn't growing like it ought to grow because we're not as convicted as we ought to be. We don't have the commitment that we ought to have. Maybe it's the case that we really haven't come to terms. The sad, solemn truth that without Christ people are lost. As Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2 at verse 12, and it's not a pretty picture. He said those who are outside a covenant relationship with God, they are without hope. They don't have a prayer. He said they're without hope and without God in this world. And there are people that live next door to us. They live across the street. They live in the home behind us. And they check out in the line at the grocery with us. And they pump gasoline at the gas station with us. And that common thread that binds them together is this. They're lost. And we have the remedy. And we say nothing. I don't know if you read the copy of the bulletin this week. But on the front page of the bulletin is a song. You never mentioned him to me. Verse 1, when in the better land before the bar we stand, how deeply grieved our souls will be. If any lost one there should cry in deep, in deep despair, you never mentioned him to me. Oh, let us spread the word where'er it may be heard. Help groping souls the light to see. That yonder none may say, you showed me not the way. You never mentioned him to me. A few sweet words may guide a lost one to his side, or turn sad eyes on Calvary. So work as days go by that yonder none may cry. You never mentioned him to me. The first three verses, and then the chorus. You never mentioned him to me, nor help me the light to see. Now listen to this. You met me day by day and knew I was astray. You never mentioned him to me. When we stand before the judge of all the earth, is it possible that somebody that sat in class with us could say, you knew I wasn't a Christian, and you never said one word to me. You never invited me to church. You never told me about salvation. Could it be that a co-worker could say, you know, we played golf together, we played tennis together. 
We enjoyed a lot of time together, eating, spending time together. And over the years, you never once mentioned him to me. Could that be said? What about a family member? Is it possible that we have family members, not members of the church, and we've never yet said one word to them about the Christ and New Testament Christianity? We know they're lost, and we know that if they were to die, they wouldn't have a chance. But we've yet to say one word. These guys, they were convicted. And they were committed. And because of that, you couldn't muzzle them. You couldn't stifle them. If anything, the greater the persecution, the greater in terms of people obeying the gospel, the greater the numbers. And then very quickly, the uniqueness of the message. Note, if you would, what is said. Daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let me tell you what. They understood a very powerful truth. And this truth is putting us at odds with many people in the world in which we live, and that includes America. And the truth is salvation is exclusively in Jesus. When you preach and teach the Christ... You can't preach and teach the Christ and leave other people alone. It doesn't work that way. When they preached the gospel in the first century, guess what? They were automatically enemies of the Jewish people and the Jewish hierarchy. When we preach the gospel and when, when we tell people, look, Jesus is the way, He is the only way, we are automatically odd man out. Why? Because in our world today, in our country today, pluralism, Pluralism reigns. I'll get it out in a minute. We have become a pluralistic society. And the idea is anything goes. Whatever you want to believe, you believe it. Whatever you want to do, you do it. Not the case. No, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Acts chapter 4, verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other. That means salvation is not in Judaism. Salvation is not in Islam. It's not in denominationalism. It's in Christ and in the purity of His church that He purchased with His blood. So, when we become convicted like that, and we understand that there is an exclusive message and that we have that message. And it's not out of arrogance that we talk to people, but we talk to them in love. We try to lead them to Christ. These guys wouldn't back down. I don't know what the future holds in this country, but I know one thing. Those of us who belong to the body of Christ, we have become the proverbial whipping post in this country. And I suspect it's going to get worse. So we got to decide where we're going to stand. For whom will we stand? Will we back down? Or will we stand? The saints in the first century, they wouldn't back down. And what God says to us, don't back down. We are to commit our souls unto Him who is a faithful creator. 
He'll take care of us. If you're here tonight and you're not a member of the body of Christ, we want to encourage you to come to Christ, believing that Jesus is the Son of God, repenting of your sins, confessing His name, be immersed with Him in water so that all your sins can be washed away. If you'll do that, God will put you in the church, Acts 2.47. If you're faithful until death, the promise is the crown of life. If you're here tonight, you're not faithful, you're not what you ought to be, why not come home? Come back to a loving God who will abundantly pardon as we stand and sing.